From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks. Highlights of conversations heard on our previous episodes. On this week's episode, we'll hear from Adrian Gar and Latrice Anderson of Buffalo Snug. I come from it, so I can relate to what these individuals, you know, to, a lot of them don't have any hope. You know, they think that they grow up and this is just it. You know, so we try to help them to see a better and brighter future. From Buffalo's Afro-American Historical Association of the Niagara Frontier, Charles Brandy and Melvin Watkins. We talked and, and he said, we need some place where we can put scholarly writings from different people around the globe. We talked and I said, well, if everybody else starts a journal, we can start a journal. And finally, G. Swords and Faith Winship of Gliss of Western New York. We support LGBTQ plus youth all the way from ages five up to 21, but we also really work with parents, caregivers, teachers, social workers, anyone who has a youth in their life that they need better education and support for. First off, SNUG. It stands for Should Never Use Guns. Two of Buffalo SNUG's members, Adrian Gar and Latrice Anderson, spoke with our Angelique Preston about their outreach initiative that is targeting at-risk youth and adults. Their mission? To lower the gun violence they're seeing within the east side community of Buffalo. So why don't you tell us what Buffalo Snug is? Okay, so <laughs> we are a violence prevention initiative program that works to reduce gun violence. We mediate conflicts and we work with individuals who are at the highest risk of shooting someone or being shot. And what does Snug stand for? Should never use guns. It's a street outreach program, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. And it works in correlation with another entity called Brave? Yeah, so Brave is one of our very like close partners like from the beginning, and they're Buffalo Rising Against Violence. The other thing about SNUG is that Buffalo SNUG is not just centered in Buffalo. Buffalo SNUG is a part of the New York State outreach. So our huge funder is the Department of Criminal Justice Services, DCJS, for the state people. And so we're actually one of 15 sites across the state. So we've got sites everywhere from Niagara Falls all the way down to the Bronx at Jacoby Hospital. What type of things do you both see as far as um, when you're when people come in and they need assistance? So from I guess I'll take it from the victim side a lot of times when people are injured or they're involved in like you know a gun involved incident what I mostly see is just their whole lives are disrupted and there are just a lot of supports that are not there for victims of violent crime like specific specifically for gun violence incidents. So we're just glad to kind of just be a bridge from, I, I tell clients it's just making things a little bit less less terrible because you've got the injury, you have the recovery, the rehabilitation. Somebody might be out of work for a while. Maybe somebody was about to start work and they end up getting you know injured in a gun involved incident. So what I see mostly is just people like one, just their whole lives being turned upside down um, in a lot of different ways. Um, and two, them really just needing support to get from point A to point B to try to like get stable.
civilized. So that's what I mostly, that's what I see most often. And what about you, Latrice? Uh, for myself, the outreach side, um, what I see is children who are, or individuals who are often misunderstood. Children who don't know why they do the things that they do or feel the way that they feel. So they're not familiar with their triggers, you know, what causes them to spiral out. So like I said, a lot of them are misunderstood versus being bad, if that makes you know any sense. So I see it on the outreach side that um, not trouble, but just kid, individuals, I don't want to keep referring to them as kids because we work with, oh, you know, older individuals as well, but individuals who needs to to understand that it's people out there like them or who's, who come from that same walk of life um, and that, that's made a change. Oftentimes they don't see the change people made, but they see, you know, oh, this person has someone killed too, this person went to jail, but what happened after that? And I would say for the um, participants as well, for the youth that we work with and some of the um, younger adults, um, I would agree they're often misunderstood. And then also, too, they have like, so we are described as dealing with the highest risk youth, and that's just not with their risk behavior. That is with everything. So, you know, what you call like a global type of thing is untreated mental health, like severe like trauma histories from not even childhood, from birth until they get to us. Oftentimes, a lot of our participants, when they engage with us as SNUG, it's like the only time they can actually be like a teenager. Um, they find it to be the only place where they can actually be safe enough to kind of let down their guard and be like an actual kid. So that's what I see. So when they say the highest risk youth, it's in every kind of sphere of their life that you can imagine. It's not just the behaviors that unfortunately, you know, give them a propensity to, you know, go to violence first versus trying to talk it out. So that's what I see too, yeah, just misunderstood. Do you both, um, in the work that you do, when you meet these children or, or adults, can you relate to some of the things that, that they tell you? Some of the stuff I've grown up around, but I was never in. So some stuff, um, I'm gonna be honest, I can't really relate to. Like, I don't know what it's like to be so fearful that I, or feel so unsafe that I need to carry. However, I understand as a human being, you need to f feel safe. And if you've all your life been in survival mode, I can, I can understand like that perspective. I can understand, you know, um, why, you know, in a moment somebody might not be feeling very talkative and they might want to, you know, use a very permanent solution <laughs> for like a temporary problem, especially if they don't know how to like work their feelings out. So some of that stuff I can relate to, but some of the lives that they lead, um, I can't say that like I know what that's about because I've only observed it as an outsider because I grew up on the east side, you know, Adams and Peck, I'm 31. Woo. <laughs> so I've only observed it as an outsider. Um, but I think um, our outreach workers and probably Latrice probably late, relate a little bit more. Um, definitely. Um, every story is unique. Um, however, when, when these individuals tell them, it's like I've heard it before, just in a different, you know, scenario or, you know, just a different name to it. But it's constantly like the same story. You know, they're affected by uh, what we see in the neighborhood, you know, the drugs, uh, the gun violence. Uh, not having like gardens and trees to look yeah. at. Yeah, you, you know, know public your parents, uh, your uncle in prison, you know, I, prostitute, like it, I come from it. So I can relate to what these individuals, you know, to, a lot of them don't have any hope. You know, they think that they grow up and this is just it. 
you know, so we try to help them to see a better and brighter future. Like, it's more to just, you know, becoming an adult and just going out there, working a job, coming back to the same environment. You could change your environment. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we're challenged to do is we challenge their norms, like what they perceive as normal with, you know, other things um, because we want to shift their norm, and that is the long game. So that's one of the things that we're very, like, aware of is that's the long game. Like, you have someone who, even if they are 15, some of these 15-year-olds we engage with, they it's like they don't live, like, a thousand lifetimes. Mm-hmm. You know, they're doing stuff that a 15-year-old, you know, if they had the supports, they would, you know, they wouldn't be doing. You know, they're like whole adults doing adult things with the adolescent brain. Mm-hmm. And it takes time to shift that norm. You know, it's not like a, it's not the easiest job to do, but it's, it is very rewarding. But yeah, we're tasked with that as well. I want to talk about uh, your paths to the career that you both are doing now, because you mentioned that it's, it's hard work, but it's also rewarding. Uh, both of you are from Buffalo, are from the east side, Adams, mm-hmm. Cold, Cold Spring. <laughs> <laughs> and Latrice, I want to start with you first, um, because I read your background that you were affected directly by gun violence, which led which led to your career path. Now you were majoring in criminal justice at ECC. Can you just tell us more about that? I've always wanted to be on that side of the the wall, not on this side, but I always wanted to be a police officer since I was a younger, uh, a little girl. My uncle was a security guard, and I first was affected by gun violence when my uncle um, took the life of somebody. But I didn't realize that until later on, that that was my first you know, trauma from gun violence. My uncle, who was like a father figure to me, was ripped away from us, you know, sentenced to 17 and a third. So started hanging with the wrong people, started getting a little, you know, factuated with guns for some reason. I like guns. They they was pretty. Gold ones, you know, silver ones. I don't know. It, it was weird. Picked up my first gun, shot my first gun at 12 years old. Um, what I realize now is I could have been killed when the police came into my backyard and I had this 12-gauge shotgun in my hand and they could have shot me right right then and there. They didn't. They didn't even arrest me. I, I can't remember too much of it. But moving you know, along, it was when I had just had my daughter. She was three weeks old. Me and my fiance, we decided, you know, it's been a long couple of months with the pregnancy. Let's go out for the first time after uh, giving birth to her. And we decided to stop at a gas station prior to going to the bowling alley. And for some reason or another, someone decided that they was going to take this life. So that was like really, I don't know what it did. It, it did something, though, in, in two ways. Like it made me want to change, but it made me want to retaliate. If you know, I'm, I'm human. So then I wanted to retaliate. Then I wanted the person who's responsible for taking my daughter's life. I wanted his family to feel the same thing that I felt. He was caught right then and there. He went to jail. So I wanted the family to experience, like I said, what I experienced. Um, so again, spiraling out of control, end up catching a case of my own, a gun charge, and that sat me down. Uh, and, and it that was my higher power uh, way of telling me I need to talk to you, you know. So I did a year in what was called the Alternative to Incarceration House. So I didn't have to go to prison, thank God. I, I was the toughest of the toughest back then, but I wasn't built for prison. I don't care what anybody say. It wasn't going there. So with that is where um, I went to mental health. 
Um, I got to counseling for that and I started to understand why I was feeling the way I was feeling. Fast forward, however many years later, because, you know, with catching my case, it was hard for me to find a job. I was, I was in school, criminal justice. Not going to be, you know, in that field anymore, so I got to change my major. You know, um, let me try nursing. Can't do that because I'm a convicted felon. Hair school. Can't, I even got a... To even be a, a, you know, a licensed cosmetology, you got to get something from the state. So, you know, everything just was like slapping me in the face, like, mm, you can't do anything. And it's like, dang, I became a convicted felon, you know, because I didn't have the help that I needed. Like now, we got snug. So if someone is affected by gun violence now, we step in. We there from the beginning to whenever, you know, as soon as it happened, because I know that it's somebody who's going to feel the same way that I felt. It's a mother out there who's going to lose the father of their child, and they're going to want that family to feel what they're feeling. So I got to step in and try to show that young lady it's a different way. Like, it's, it's okay to feel how you feel. Can't nobody change how you feel, but what you going to do with them feelings? You know, so I, I kind of didn't do the right thing, but I didn't have me. I didn't have, you know, social worker Adrian. I, I didn't have snug. These individuals have that now. So when they go out here, they commit these crimes or, you know, be shot, we have the ability to show them why they, you know, may be experiencing what they're experiencing. Your background, you know, the kids you hang around, you know, guilty by association, all that stuff. We're able to teach them. And it also sounds like that you are the perfect person to talk to them because it seems like you're not talking at them because you've lived and you've had these shared experiences that they can relate to. Mm -hmm. So it's not just someone saying, don't do this because, you know, I didn't do it. It's like, don't do this because I lived it. And that's not the way. Right. Yeah. And yeah. even when I engage, because, again, like I... I was never about that life. Even when I engage with these kids, like, it's never a don't do that. It is more of a me helping them, which is what social workers do, is it's person in the environment. And then also one of the big things we do is challenge people's, like, worldview, especially when it comes to something like gun violence. If you are getting so upset that your first mind is to harm someone violently, we need to kind of talk about what is leading you up to that. Because it couldn't be that situation. There were a thousand other things you could have done what happened in that moment that those other things were not an option or that you weren't thinking clearly enough to get to that option so and it's never a you know you should now what we are clear about is when these kids are getting into the stuff that they're getting into are the consequences so just to make it very clear all our snug staff are very clear with these kids about this is the road you're going down and this is what the consequences may potentially look like and once that happens you know we really can't some of these kids think you know we can like kind of save them but that's not that's not really the role we play we have really great relationships like with courts and stuff like that so they know that if a kid is really participating in snug that the likelihood of them being engaged in the high-risk behavior goes down which is what our model is but we're very clear about the consequences so talking at them and saying you know don't that that does not work. That is not an approach that works with these kids at all. One, because they're hard to engage from the jump. And then if they don't feel that acceptance, which is what they really do need, like they're not like they're not coming back, you know. That's we have like one time to make a mistake mm -hmm. and we will not see them again. What about have you had any children that have been through the program and then they've come back and have said I learned so much or thank you for being there and their life trajectory has changed since being in the program. Yes. 
So we, one of my very first participants graduated out of the program, uh, what, two, I want to say two years ago. Mm-hmm. He's doing so well. And to get him from the point where he was at to where he is, where when I say he wouldn't even get on a bus to go to work. It was couldn't. yeah he couldn't. So it's a community safety issue. Yeah. So yeah. So it was steps that I had to take. Like you know, okay, I'm gonna drive you all the way to Grand Island today and tomorrow, you know, for this week. But you got to meet me halfway. You got to meet me somewhere. So I got him from wouldn't get on the bus at all to okay, I'm gonna get on the bus at least uh, from the Greyhound to out there to now I'm gonna take the bus from the Greyhound home. That's a big step for somebody who's worried about someone shooting them or killing them or even his his uh, brother. Um, he's graduated. He now has a car. He's doing good. He hasn't been arrested. And we're talking, I want to say, two and a half years. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just one of them. Some graduate out of the program, unfortunately, they uh, they get arrested again. But they know where they can come back and get that, that assistance. You know, they come home from jail. They know where they could come. So there's always that that open door mm-hmm. to yeah. to try again. The job, yeah. the objective is for the participants to become outreach workers because we're the credible messengers. It's us that's going to get the next generation to where they need to be. You know, we need credible messengers, people who come from that. Someone who comes from uh, Orchard Park can't tell me how to survive in Buffalo. You can't at all. So we need people who come from that. So it's it's good to get them and train them up so that they can be outreach workers and help the next generation. Next on Producers Picks, since 1977, the Afro-American Historical Association of the Niagara Frontier has been publishing the African Americans in New York Life and History, an interdisciplinary journal. Its goal has been to allow a place for scholars to document and expound upon historical events as pertaining to the African-American experience. Charles Brandy, the president of the group, as well as Melvin Watkins, one of its founding members, spoke with R.J. Moran. So let's let's go back. 1977 was the start of the journal. Yes. Right? What uh, what prompted the, the, the founding of this, of this journal in, in Western New York? Well, way back then... Uh... Dr. Fordham was the head of the association, and we talked, and, and he said, we need some place where we can put scholarly writings from different people around the globe. So we talked, and I said, well, if everybody else starts a journal, we can start a journal. And it was a, a rocky road to start it because none of us had done it before. Hmm. But we went through the mechanics of it, it had to be copyrighted. It had to have a specific ISBN number. And it had to have people knowing that it was a place for scholarly articles. But it just does not limit itself to scholarly articles. It can be general articles about what's going on as long as they have the proper background and so forth. And uh, so we were able to start and get many... Uh, articles to come in and that was back in 77 and we're now I guess on volume 44 coming up so we're sort of proud of that. I, I was going to say how many journals have started and faded away in their first year or two. Uh, Charles you're, you're, you weren't there at the beginning but you're there now. Absolutely so this is the legacy of uh, the founders of the Afro-American Historical Association of the Niagara Frontier 
Dr. Fordham being one of them, Dr. Leland Williams. And when they were completing their, their doctoral studies at the University of Buffalo, they wanted to research on African African American history. And there were very few repositories for that. So they created this organization to preserve African African American history in Buffalo, New York State, so that future scholars will have the opportunity if they so desire. So at the University at Buffalo, we, there's some icons there. Majority of our, our icon for the organization is housed at Buffalo State College, Butler Library. There's a whole entire Dr. Moreau Fordham uh, Center where a lot of the work has been microfilmed and any scholar can access it to go ahead and improve their scholarship. And that's how I met Dr. Fordham when I was an undergraduate at uh, Buffalo State College. And I helped to microfilm some of those uh, documents. So in the community, um, we have the William Miles African American Center. At Merrill Library, at right? Frank Merrill well, Library. Just stumbled in there last week. It's quite impressive. Very impressive. So some of our, our archives are located there as well. So the community want to access that. Um, so primarily the organization is to preserve African and African American history uh, as it relates to Buffalo or New York State. New York yeah. State. Yeah, New York so State. when a journal came about in 77, it was a more of a multidisciplinary journal, peer review. So we had a lot of scholars. Uh, and any time that we're using peer review, there are strict guidelines as to parameters of how the articles have to be written. And then we have reviewers that were on the review boards that looked at the journal, provide feedback to the um, writers, and then eventually they made a cut, they went to um, publication. Were you that harsh on them? Were you, uh, Melvin, were you, were you that harsh? So you, some, some, some didn't make the cut? Well, I tried to be the managing editor and not <laughs> the others. But, you know, at one point we had, um, we sponsored the, uh, what, the Afro-American uh, where we had the meeting over in the hotel. At the Hyatt, uh, yeah. 2005. Yes. What was the name of the group? Say the it. Association of African-American um, uh, History and Studies. Yeah. Uh, the organization Carter G. Woodson started. Yeah, okay. so we had scholars from all over come to Buffalo that year, and uh, so people saw and so forth. And they were, they were named scholars. Um, the problem is a lot of the older scholars have passed, so we're now looking for younger scholars that can write and are willing to write about events that happen in New York State. And they can be events that happened yesterday or, you know, 200 years ago. It's still fit. We've only had in our lifetime, I think, five editors, Monroe, myself, Seneca. Seneca Vaughn. Seneca Vaughn, yeah. Um, Steve Peraza. Uh, Perez, Steve Peraza, mm -hmm. Peraza and uh, Michael Boston. He's at... Uh, Brockport State, okay. and he's our current editor, and so forth. And the one thing about this is that everyone throughout the years has done the work with no compensation. So that makes a big difference. I mean... Um, it's a lot of work to do for nothing. Yes, yes. Over the years, and so forth. But it's a work of love, and so forth. As I mentioned earlier, I even went over to McKinley to learn how to run offset presses which I never, by the way, got any good at. <laughs> but uh, it's no way to sell a journal, <laughs> right? But now we we sort of gotten to be to the stage where 
it looks professional, and we have a local printer who is very good and does a great job and works with us. And then I'm, I just brought two of the journals in, and I look at uh, the articles that were written and by whom. Daniel Boyd, and then we got Scruggs, we got Ralph Chowder, and uh, Christine Parker. She was doing, uh, uh, what did she actually, she was here, a local lady, and she passed, but she did on ten, Frederick Douglass' 10 Days a Slave in Buffalo. And she was doing her uh, graduate work, and that was part of her thesis. And then as of late, uh, events such as the uh, May 11th, we have uh, at least uh, f five articles in the journal, and uh, three of them written by people that have that you see on TV every day: hmm. Mark Talley, Garnell Whitfield Jr., and uh, Zanetta Everhart. So that in itself is saying that we touch the hearts of of uh, Buffalo and the surrounding areas, and we're always willing to do good. Uh, academic style articles. How deep, how far back has some of these historical efforts gone? What have we seen throughout the years of the journal uh, in terms of what people have decided to undertake in terms of, like we, went, like we said earlier, it's a lot of work, plus you've got to be able to defend it. Yes. Um, so how far back have, have we seen people go with some of their work? Well, when I look at Daniel Boyd, his is the power of proximity. Frederick Douglass and his transnational relations with the British Canada, 1847 to 1861. So the, the journal goes back that far to talk about what happened and so forth. It's not like uh, some people we hear on the news that uh, they don't know if history is history and so forth. And uh, a lot of things touch us. Uh, for example... The average Western New Yorker does not know how the Tuscarora Reservation started. But that's history. And if we were in Florida, uh, somebody down there would say, oh, we don't want to write about that. But we do because it touches us all. So that's one of the things that I like to push. And the editors uh, all have been, in fact, I just thought of it. We've all had male editors. That doesn't mean we won't have a woman editor at some point. But it's it's free work, so that's a consideration. We have had um, some female scholars on the editorial board. Right. Like Dr. Lillian uh, Williams. Um, going back to what you mentioned about um, what Melvin mentioned about the um, conference, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. Yes. That's how and we had a conference that was back in 2005. So anytime Dr. Fordham or board members, whether it be um, Dr. Williams or um, Sharon Holly at one point, or sometimes we've sent Seneca Vaughn or Steve Peraza to um, national conferences, we try to solicit scholars to provide a scholarship towards the journal. So when you say how um, profound some of the topics have been, We've talked about Cecil Briggs and African American, uh, the African Blood Brotherhood, a radical counterpart to progressivism. The late Dr. Phillips Arnfield, Felix Arnfield, he wrote an article before he published his book on Eugene Nichols Jones and the struggle to keep the National Urban League afloat during the Great Depression. So he 
looked at it from New York State perspective and how the Urban League worked in New York and how it uh, aligned itself to a national component. So we the scholarships has been very broad. We we have had articles looking back at the first uh, African American judge in New York State. We looked at principles throughout different parts of the state. So the fact that the journal is published in, in Buffalo, we extend ourselves throughout the state. So there's been articles uh, from Poughkeepsie to Brooklyn, uh, Albany. It all depends on uh, what the scholars want to want to write about and what their particular topic is. How about this for a, a general conversation? Break into it for just a minute here. How important is the history of the Afri- African American to the typical African American, the typical black person? How important is the history? How important should the history be? Well, to give you an example, on the waterfront near the uh, near these battleships, we just have put in the uh, stones for all the servicemen that I shouldn't say all for for servicemen that served in the U.S. Uh, armed forces, and many families go there now to visit and talk about their relative that maybe uh, an older person's brother got killed in the war. Uh, but uh, when they put that uh, monument in, what is it, the Seven Pillars, is it? Um, the, the, the new um, African-American um, monument. Yes, that's unique. Veterans monument. Right. That's unique in, in the U.S., that particular one. It's the only it, one. Yeah. Only one in the entire country. Yeah, and like that, that, that honors veterans from every war. And all, I even have a, a stone there, and so forth, and a lot of other people do, and so that means that you have like the Jesse Clipper post and other posts around that are dedicated to um, the history of blacks going in the service and fighting in wars. Um, you have the Buffalo soldiers that are over in Rochester; they talk about it, and so forth, and the fact that. Uh, People look around and they see pictures of Frederick Douglass. He was the most photographed man of his time, you know. And he was in Rochester, and I think that's the reason why, because Kodak and Eastman, it was George Eastman back then. And he managed to get, not only because he had this paper, the North Star, which was distributed throughout the Northeast, but uh, he was able to be the most photographed guy. And you'll see pictures of him at various stages of his life and so forth. So the average uh, African-American comes in contact with their history in many different ways and so forth. Um, A lot of the symbols that we have, we didn't want to have. You know, nobody wanted to have Aunt Jemima (laughs) and things of that nature. But there are reasons for it. And, And now the young people might ask, a teenager might ask, well, why'd you have this picture? And then a parent could go into history and tell, well, this is how that came about. So there have been uh, reasons for to write down the history so we have it. And there's so much to write. You know, that in every war that the U.S. has fought, there's been black soldiers. Even up, you know, and before the Civil War, the French and Indian War, there's been black people that fought in it. And that's... Uh, when people do their research, they find that to be the case. What was Christmas Addicts? You may know better than I. 
I'm old. I can't remember. <laughs> Revolutionary War. Yeah. But going back to, um, as picking back what yes. Melvin said, um, we have to make sure that African Americans have an opportunity to have a role in in uh, controlling narrative as it relates to African African American history in the United States. Because currently, we see what's taking place in Florida, what's taking place in, in other parts of the city where. African-American history is being censored, whether it be the AP, uh, African-American uh, history course. Uh, some people have this mindset of, or, well, this liberal woke. Um, whatever. The, yeah, whatever that the, means. The, the <laughs> consistency of what we um, as an organization try to provide is, regardless of who's the, pre who's the president, uh, vice president, and so forth, we got to make sure that African-African-American history uh, is preserved. And is there for the generation to come? Is there for the current generation? Is there for scholars? But we need to make sure that someone um, accurately and, and scholarly uh, communicate that and, and convey that um, to the wider public um, and to our, our young people. So that's why uh, when I refer to Dr. Gretchen Soren, um, she was the one that wrote the uh, Green Book. And she kind of talked about the Green Book as it relates to New York State. Where were the different places uh, in New York State that African Americans uh, could go to for refuge and, and to find a, a place to lodge? And, and, and the Green Book told, if you came to a, a city, um, it told you where you can go um, for lodging. And um, ironically enough, Little Harlem was one of those sites. Right. But they also had places where you can go um, and get your hair cut where you can go and get a meal. Because at the time, it was unsafe for African-Americans to be in some spaces. Uh, and we don't want to go back to that. We don't want to act like that has never happened. We want to accurately uh, display what happened. And we want to say, encourage scholars to say, okay, let's go back and research those. And let's also research some of the things that are taking place now. So that's why when um, Melvin referred to our May uh, 14 uh, edition that was something that was immediate. That was something that happened. It happened right here in Buffalo. Um, and it was something that it had to be documented. And this is not, this was the most uh, horrendous act uh, that happened in Buffalo. But Buffalonians have been um, victims of uh, white supremacy with a 22 caliber sh uh, shooting. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the young people now have no idea about a 22 caliber right. shooting. So things like, um, the Bill Movement that um, Melvin mentioned, uh, which was the first community charter school. Um, and you had advocates that worked very hard uh, to make sure that um, African-Americans can control their own narrative. For our final highlight interview, as we near the end of this month's Pride celebration, we'd like to revisit our chat with G. Swords and Faith Winship. They're both educators and members of GLIS of Western New York an organization which strives to create inclusionary cultures and supportive communities for youth of all sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. G and Faith provided the Buffalo What's Next audience with a version of their safe space educational training session. Right off the top, I guess we have to explain what GLSS is, GLSS of Western New York, and, and how it came to be, what's its mission. Yeah, for sure. 
Sure. So Gliss of Western New York has actually been around for 40 years. 2023. Happy birthday. It's our 40th birthday. Um, So we began in 1983 um, through a coalition of activists in the Buffalo and Niagara region um, associated with the Madison Society and some of our founders, um, one being Robert Uplinger, who is a very well-known activist here in the Buffalo community. And really what um, GLIS does is we support LGBTQ plus youth all the way from ages 5 up to 21, but we also really work with parents, caregivers, teachers, social workers, anyone who has a youth in their life that Mm -hmm. they need better education and support for. Yeah, and the really great thing about our organization is we also service like all eight counties of Western New York. So we are based, home based in Buffalo, but we do work all the way down in like Wellsville or all the way up in Niagara Falls. And so we definitely make it our mission to be able to provide support because, you know, transportation is often an issue for a lot of these kids, these families. And so we make it our mission to like go out and bring our services to them wherever they may be in Western New York. Running the gamut. Covering covering the whole swath of Western New York. For sure. And, uh, I think as far as outreach programs, a, a big one is is the is is reaching out to schools. Mm-hmm. Or actually, I'm sorry, schools reach out to, to you all to hopefully provide uh, inclusion training for for the educators for the students. It's 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 proactively sought after by by the for educators, sure. correct? Yeah. So I started working at Gliss in like 2019 as an intern for my undergrad degree. And we were sort of in this spot where I had like a knowledge of a list of names for school contacts, but we weren't necessarily being very proactive in reaching out to them being like, hey, these are the supports we're providing. These are the events we have going on this week. And from that time into like the beginning of 2020, 2021, during the pandemic, when we were all working from home, we had the opportunity to really think like big picture what we wanted to do for Gliss. And I kind of just stuck my nose in business that wasn't necessarily mine to be bothered with. But I said, we have all these really great school contacts. Why aren't we talking to them more? Why don't we ask them what they need? And from 2019 to 2023, we have grown a list of like 60 GSA's names to we're in 127 uh, Western New York school districts. That wasn't being, that wasn't prying, that was showing initiative. It is showing initiative, yes. Well, it's it's an amazing organization. And along with the drop-in centers, Gender expansion, children, caregiver, caregiver groups. Um, can you elaborate elaborate a little bit more on on, on those services? Yeah, absolutely. So one of our sort of main areas of programming is our direct youth support. So we do that through both virtual and in person drop-in centers that happen weekly and um, we have those at community locations so like Meriwether Library, North Park Library, spaces where youth feel safe and comfortable and already have access and then our um, support groups which are a little bit more structured happen monthly so we have one for our older youth um, 13 plus who identify as trans and gender non-conforming specifically as a place for them not only to get peer support but also to interact with like older LGBTQ plus people because that's a really important um, thing that's lacking for a lot of these kiddos in our community is to have those role models who are in the same spaces, who've had the same experiences. Um, And then we just restarted a couple months ago our group for our 5 to 12-year-old kiddos, um, which also includes a parent component so that we're engaging the parents and caregivers and just the entire family unit. Siblings are welcome. Anyone that makes the youth feel more comfortable in the space Mm -hmm. is always welcome. We love allies. Well, hopefully we'll make some more new allies here today. If, (laughs) If they weren't already... Uh, we, we were talking about how we're going to do this presentation in a way that, that, that is organic, but it, but it, what stuck out to me right off the top, uh, besides uh, the, the, the Trevor Project, was the gender unicorn. We'll get to that in just a minute, but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. 
the Trevor Project, that's how you start your, your presentations on, on safe space yeah. training. What exactly is that? Yeah, so the Trevor Project is a national organization that works with LGBTQ plus um, youth who are experiencing mental health um, disparities or concerns, specifically like anxiety, depression, and suicide. And so we are big like numbers people. We like to back up all of our training components with factual statistics that, you know, really give a wonderful frame of reference. Facts to, are good. It's good to have facts you, nowadays. You can't really <laughs> argue with the facts. So we like to have those backed up into our slides. And we use the Trapper Project a lot as a really great resource. They have an annual LGBTQ plus mental health survey that comes out where LGBTQ plus youth from across the country um, take the time to fill out the survey and let the Trapper Project know what their experiences are like at home, at school, with their mental health, with their friends, if they are out or not, and just kind of a very wide variety of different experiences for these kids. And then they compile all of that data and release it as a survey, which we use a lot to just talk about kind of the norms in our society when it comes to LGBTQ plus youth and their experiences. Now, something important to note is that you know, these numbers could be potentially skewed a little bit lower than the average numbers may be because not everyone feels comfortable self-disclosing their mm -hmm. identities as LGBTQ when collecting data. But this is a pretty good, like, overall encompassing survey to be able to provide that numbers. It's a good barometer, bellwether, perhaps. For sure. perhaps. Yeah, another really important thing about the Trevor Project is they're collecting data on scales that we have not seen historically. Mm -hmm. This is a population that's very difficult to reach, very difficult to survey, like Faith said, doesn't feel comfortable disclosing. And they're collecting data on multiple aspects of people's identities, especially the youth experience. So, for example, um, in the United States, currently from the 2022 Trevor Project data that we have, about 25%, so one in every four youth who identify as, as both black and LGBTQ+, has a suicide attempt um, in the past 12 months. And about 41% of LGBTQ plus youth right here in New York State um, have seriously considered suicide within the past 12 months. Wow. Um, I, I wasn't, I mean, it's 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 definitely hard growing up as a, as a teenager in life in general. And, mm -hmm. and add to that just the, the, the pressures of uh, being minority identity, gender identity, uh, individual in, in today's world where it seems like I, I feel like we were doing so well we were doing so well now we're just like the political machine is kind of just coming coming at at, at us all and and making it a lot more difficult mm -hmm. so uh this is important information and I'm, I'm glad that we're, we're sharing this because it's not it's not easy and it's not easy to i to figure your, your yourself out to find out your your identity and i think that that that, that leads us to the unicorn Yes. yes. I mean, it's a it's a it's a great uh, image. If you if you're by a computer, if you have your phone, look up the gender unicorn. It's very it's it's cheerful, it's joyful, but it it kind of delineates and and explains kind of the the all the different terms that that mm -hmm. that we should know. Yes. So the gender unicorn is a digital graphic that was created by a group called TSER, which is the Trans Student Educational Resource. So this is a group of college students who identify as trans, gender nonconforming, somewhere within the LGBTQ plus spectrum. And they wanted to be able to create, you know, documents and resources to help explain gender identity, sexual orientation, the differences between those concepts. Um, LGBTQ plus human rights laws to people who may be unfamiliar with the community in a very easily digestible way. People are often a little taken aback when they're like, oh, you are a professional organization and you're using like a cutesy, cuddly unicorn it's to a diagram. It's help a, it's a explain these. Aid. But it's supposed to be non-threatening. People are often very 
you know, if they're unfamiliar with the community, people are afraid of things they don't know and they're hesitant to learn things that may question what they have as their standard. And so the unicorn is a little plushy, non-threatening concept to be like, this is not something that needs to be scary. It's not something that is inappropriate for people of a young age demographic. It is just something very simply using individual representation to explain how there are very different aspects of ourselves that create one human being or unicorn. And that's... And to break it down, it's it's gender identity, mm-hmm. gender expression, sex assigned at birth, and then physically attracted to and emotionally attracted to. What are, what are some of those differences? Yeah. So one is um, when we're talking about gender identity, we're actually talking about just that individual person's experience of their own gender. So identity on any aspect is very personal, including how we think about our gender. And oftentimes that comes with a lot of cultural aspects. It comes with a lot of unpacking your sort of personal experiences of gender throughout your life. So your gender identity is how you're experiencing all of those things personally, Mm -hmm. whereas your gender expression is kind of how you choose to portray that um, outwardly, right? And so gender expression can be through speaking. It can be through mannerisms. It can be through fashion. There's lots of different ways to um, express your gender And there's a lot of different misconceptions about gender expression. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you know the story of how pink and blue got switched. I know, thanks to you you both, but (laughs) but please, enlighten us. So um, pre-World War II, actually, it used to be quite common that pink was considered a very loud and masculine color, and blue was a soft, feminine, demure color. And then um, there was, like, some textile dye shortages and some other arbitrary sort of things and post-World War II it came out that pink was for girls and blue was for boys and now that's so prevalent in a lot of western society and in Mm -hmm. our communities and that's a great example of how something that we think of in our society as being super gendered is actually something that if you go back in a historical context was completely different Mm -hmm. so we think it's really important to also understand like the historical context of the way we think about gender and these different concepts and um, the gender unicorn of course isn't a perfect tool um, but it's a great way to sort of like visualize Mm -hmm. exactly I'm a very visual person so it's a great way to sort of think through those you Um, mentioned pink and 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 the gender norms of of, of ascribed to it now Uh, I'm from Miami all right we we love our pink we love our pastels (laughs) I can I love rocking the pink just just yes. with, along with anyone. Uh, flamingos, I mean, they're the coolest birds out there. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just wanted to state that. All right, I love it. Pink is pink is, is cool as I heck. carry a pink face. Favorite color. <laughs> it is. I love it. But then uh, when we talk about so there's gender identity, gender expression, and then we can't just simply refer to it as just a person's sex. It's sex mm-hmm. assigned at birth. Yeah. So one of the sort of most important distinctions for trans and non-binary folks, for folks whose gender identity doesn't necessarily match the sex on their birth certificate. So we say sex assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. That's reflective of a variety of either physical characteristics um, that can be chromosomes or body type or structure where a doctor or a midwife or whomever's at your birth is going to assign you a gender identity or sex based on those characteristics. And so it's important that we recognize that a lot of times that's going to be either male or female and leaves out um, sort of the just really complex nature of physical bodies. Like we all have a different body type. We all have Mm -hmm. different body Mm -hmm. structures. Um, 
intersex folks are often folks that are left out of that conversation. If you're unfamiliar, intersex is an umbrella term that's used to describe people who are born with a variety of reproductive organs or sex characteristics or chromosomes. And they're often left out of that conversation. Um, and we often put people's bodies and assigned sexes into just the very binary male and female. And then uh, there's physically and emotional attraction. That is, that's, that's one is more uh, sexual in nature. The other one's really an, a, a, an internal mm-hmm. attraction that, that one seeks, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So physical attraction is what we would kind of know as like sexual orientation. So gay, straight, bisexual are terms people are usually pretty familiar with. Um, that has to do with who you are physically or sexually attracted to. Some people don't experience any physical or sexual attraction or experience it on a spectrum, which Mm. is often known as asexual. Um, And then emotionally attracted to is more of like a romantic attraction. Mm -hmm. And so some people might experience romantic attraction and not experience sexual attraction or have any kind of combination of those two things, which is why we like to um, separate those concepts. The gender unicorn. It's a magical thing. Yes. It, it, helps, it helps break down all these things so wonderfully. Take a look at it. It's great. <laughs> as far as proper use of pronouns, what, what, what else can, can you uh, tell us about that? Pronouns are the thing that we get asked about the most. <laughs> People are yes. so either like anxiously concerned about getting it right or genuinely confused about what it has to do with relations to the community. The most important thing that we like to distinct is that pronouns are not inherently queer in nature. Everyone uses pronouns. Everyone Mm -hmm. has pronouns. Pronouns exist outside of he, she, they, them. It's also you, me, I, we. English. English. We (laughs) love it. It is any word that's replacing a noun. So any word that could be replacing your name. But the LGBTQ plus community has really taken pronouns to be a very important part of their conversation because it is a verbal way of expressing gender identity, Mm -hmm. as an example. So I identify as a cis heterosexual woman. I use she, her pronouns. My pronouns align with my gender identity. It also happens to align with the sex I was assigned at birth. There's no variation in that for me. But you... So for me, I use they, them pronouns. And oftentimes when I step into a space and I introduce myself with my pronouns, I'm kind of inadvertently outing myself in that space and saying, I don't necessarily um, use pronouns that are aligning with my sex assigned at birth. And so for me, using they, them as um, identify as non-binary, so I don't necessarily identify as male or female. And using they, them is a way to signal to folks Um, these are the things that make me feel comfortable. These are the things that make me feel safe and affirmed. Um, You also are going to hear a lot of rise in folks using what we like to call neo-pronouns. So those are pronouns um, that are not historically associated with any gender identity. There are tons and tons of different types of neos. Um, Some of the most common ones you're going to hear might be Z or Zer or Fay, But there are lots and lots of different examples, and it's a way that the LGBTQ plus community has really um, taken ownership of pronouns and taken away some of those negative historical contexts associated with just he and she. And something we get asked a lot is, oh, well, I want to make sure that the room I'm speaking to, whether it be my staff, my coworkers, a group of students I'm teaching, just my group of friends, how do we initiate the 
like conversation of I want to know who uses what pronouns. Mm-hmm. And so there was this wave of wokeness as we refer to it as Oh, a the W word, you said it. Oh yes, I know. You said the secret word. Uh-huh. We don't really use it much in our <laughs> conversations, but that's kind of what, what we does that word to mean? To. Honestly, who knows at this point. But everyone who, you know, was supportive of the community really got excited about this concept. And so they would walk into their spaces and they'd be like, Hi everybody, um, why don't we go around the room and start with our names and our pronouns and what organization you work from? This happens to G and I a lot when we go to community spaces and we're working with different organizations. And that's a really great concept in thought, but in application, it could potentially be very, you know, dangerous, for lack of a better term, for some people who identify within the LGBTQ plus community because you've really got two options. You either have to disclose public information if you are mm-hmm. out and comfortable with that. That's great for you. If you were not out in that public space, then you are either forced to disclose information you weren't prepared to disclose or you have to lie to save face. And that's a very dehumanizing experience. And it was all with good intent. But the you know application and the translation of that really just doesn't apply in most settings. Mm-hmm. And so what we like to do, G and I do this just about everywhere we go. We're like, oh, hi, my name's Faith. She, her. And we just move on. It's Damn. a five second <laughs> addition into the sentence I was saying. It takes a little bit of adjustment to get used to because it's a little awkward when you're not used to saying it. Mm -hmm. But that is just the subliminal message that G and I are sending to say like, hey, we are using our pronouns in order to invite you to share yours with us if you feel so comfortable. And it really normalizes the fact Mm -hmm. that like Faith mentioned, there's nothing inherently queer about pronouns. We all have them. And it may seem like a very, very small thing for folks who are not used to consistently sharing mm-hmm. their pronouns, but it signals in such a big way, especially for adults working with youth, it signals in such a big way, you belong here, I accept you, mm-hmm. you are safe here. And when when speaking to the youth, speaking with groups of, of kiddos, mm-hmm. uh, collective pronouns. Oh, it, yes. It, it sometimes, it, it's something I've, I've been working on now for a while now because we're in, in my profession i i want to be as inclusive as possible ladies and gentlemen that's yes that's That's my least favorite one gotta get rid of that one uh (laughs) boys and girls Mm -hmm. that i'm sure that one's uh used a lot in in school settings still but uh that one's always a a a tricky one what 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 suggestions would you have yeah so i my favorite example is that when i was in high school our band teacher and i say r as if i took band i was not in (laughs) band but this man was just so friendly that everyone wanted to say hi to him in the morning and so he would keep the Doors to his band room open, and every morning, second period, if I walked down the hall, you heard him go, good morning, friends. Because one, I don't know any high schooler who's like super excited to be up at 7.30 in the morning. But two, (laughs) it was a wonderful like way to make students feel comfortable in trusting this adult figure who's supposed to be in charge of them and breaking down that power dynamic. When I started doing this work and I really was thinking about like more inclusive ways to refer to a group of people, I thought of that example as, oh my goodness. He was being so Mm -hmm. affirming to anyone's gender identity by not saying good morning, boys and girls, because he was using an alternative suggestion for that. I asked him about it years later and he was like, oh, yeah, I just say it because it's fun. But that's a great that works, too. Awesome. And so you don't really have to think like too deeply about it. Y'all is a great one. That's a, I use that one. Mm-hmm. I'm you, from Texas. We y'all means all. <laughs> y'all means all, and you don't have to be from the South to say it. I do. It's I do. Uh, what's up, gang? Yes, lovely. Everyone is always ladies and gentlemen is my least favorite. If you're like at a sporting event, it's really cliches, right? Well, yes. get honestly, away with the and old I cliches. understand you're trying to be get like polite, but I had a school ask us like, "Well, what do you say?" I was like, "What's your mascot?" And they said, "Oh, we're like the Panthers." I said, 
good afternoon, afternoon Panthers. Panthers. Like, it's not exactly. that hard. Like, if you're at a Bills game next year and they can be like, what's up, Bills fans? Like, it's not that. Which I think they do now. They do. I think they, they do. do. They're, good they're good job, Bills. We good love job, that. Bills. Go, Bills. Um, but it's just really not that deep, honestly. And so I think it's just an opportunity to think a little bit about the words you're using. Something that G and I talk about a lot is like when we were both starting to, you know, really think like in our personal lives, how to use like non-gendered language or gender neutral language is what we like to call it. We would be driving down the street and you'd see like your mailman. You go, oh, nope, not the mailman, That's right. the mail carrier. Or it's not the fireman or the policeman. Mm -hmm. It's the police officer, the firefighter. Just using more gender neutral language in your everyday life makes it second place. You don't have to think about it too much anymore once it becomes something that you're trying to implement into your everyday jargon. Yeah, someone asked me the other day, well, does that mean I can't say manhole cover anymore? Ooh, that's a, uh, yeah. And I said, it's, I said it's not, you know, that complex. There are definitely right. words that have gendered terms in them that we're going to use colloquially, and that's completely fine. The purpose and the point is, is to just practice it, right? To just try as best you can to include gender-neutral language, mm -hmm. because it's actually about the intentionality and the message that you're sending. You're saying, Correct. okay, I'm attempting to change my language to be more cognizant Absolutely. and open and inclusive. And there's nothing wrong with like a slip up either. Yes. People are like, we're human beings. Make a mistake. It's okay to make a mistake. Take ownership of that mistake though, especially if someone points it out to you. So like if you accidentally misgender someone, call them by the wrong pronouns. If someone corrects you, whether it be in the moment or later on, don't take that as like an absolute beating to your self-esteem being like, oh, I'm a horrible person. I've accidentally like caused like an entire mental spiral for this person. Just apologize, correct yourself and move on. Yeah, those are our three tips, our three hot tips those if you mess solid. pronouns up. Um, and the move on is probably the most important part because mm -hmm. oftentimes we want to like Especially if we feel like we've offended mm -hmm. someone, we want to apologize and we want to explain. But then that can flip the dynamic and that can put the onus on the other person. So just apologizing and correcting yourself. And the more that you do that, the more that you'll find that mm -hmm. it's easier and easier to integrate those pronouns naturally. Yeah. And if you don't know someone's pure pronouns, just use they, them. Safe, Simple as that. Safe golden rule right there. Mm -hmm. Yep. We thank you for joining us. This has been Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. A special thanks to our guests this week, Adrian Gar and Latrice Anderson from Buffalo Snug, Charles Brandy and Melvin Watkins of the Afro-American Historical Association of the Niagara Frontier, and G. Swartz and Faith Winship from Gliss in Western New York. As a reminder, Buffalo What's Next airs on WBFO every weekday morning, 10 to 11, and it re-airs each weeknight at 9 p.m. Each episode is also available wherever you get your podcasts, the Amplify BTPM app, and also on demand at WBFO.org. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is WBFO History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of June 19th through June 25th. I'm your host and WBFO Program Director, Tom Barich. The very first Juneteenth celebration in Buffalo, New York, happened at Martin Luther King Park on June 19th, 1976. 
On June 19, 1826, the town of Ellicott, New York, officially changes all of their street names to English from the original Dutch names. The very first commercial civilian helicopter rolled off the Bell Aircraft assembly line in Wheatfield, New York on June 24, 1945. And in other flying news, aviator Katherine Stinson flies from Buffalo, New York to Washington, D.C. on June 24, 1918. The trip was actually a delivery of checks from the Red Cross, many millions of dollars worth, and was delivered by plane directly to the steps of the U.S. Treasury in Washington, D.C. Catherine was only 19 years old at the time. And June 24th and 25th, 1974, Elvis Presley performs a concert in Niagara Falls, New York. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For WBFO, I'm Tom Barich.